Hello and welcome to episode three of our six-part summer series, The Totally Football Show Presents Zonal Marking, to coincide with the release of the book of the same name by Michael Cox, who joins us once again. Hi. Hello. We are also joined by Julien Laurent, no stranger to telling us about French international success over the past 12 months, regrettably. But today, we're going back 19 years to look at France's victorious Euro 2000 winning side. Jules, set the scene. What were you up to in the summer of 2000? <laughs> I was still a very young man, Ian, and, uh, and there was a lot of optimism in the country going into to the Euros, obviously because of the win in, in 1998. Uh, and no one had never done the double in that way, World Cup first and then European Championship. So I think at that time, there was a lot of people quite excited about the tournament coming up and quite optimistic that France would do well. Now, Coxie, this book is all about chapters of European history. We would have thought that when we looked at France, we'd be looking at France 98 or France 98 and France 2000, but we're just looking at the French 2000 team. Why is that? I just think they were a much better team. I mean, in terms of the 11, it's pretty similar, but then you see the difference in, in attackers. 98, the team was overshadowed by the fact they didn't have this really prolific striker. Obviously, they beat Brazil in the final, but the focus was initially as much on Ronaldo and what happened to him as much as it was on the France side. And they came in 2000, a completely different side, a lot more attacking players, a lot more attacking flair, and I think they were just, from the outset, them and Holland were kind of the neutrals' favourites. And I think there was a kind of unusual level of happiness amongst everyone that they beat Italy in the final, obviously a very defensive Italy side. Yeah, and in 1998, I mean, in, in the book, Cox, you say that France won the World Cup by essentially playing an Italian style. The other major difference was the striker, Jules, uh, Stefan Givarch, <laughs> who, of course, won the World Cup without scoring a goal, something which was repeated by Olivier Giroud uh, just last year. Though, while Giroud's merits are easy to spot, Givarch was a different story, wasn't he? Yeah, it was, and, you know, he sells swimming pools now, and he's still happy that he won the World Cup. In '98, he doesn't really care if he scored or not. He he always knew he was a limited striker, and Christophe Dugarry was the other striker in the in the squad. Himself, not the most prolific of strikers either. He's he's better probably linking up the play and things like that, than just be a, a fox in the box or that kind of striker. So it was pretty clear before '98 that if something happened in that World Cup, it would be down to how solid the team was going to be defensively, especially. And then sort of relying on Jokev and Zidane to, to create something because we knew that with Dugarry and Givarge, there was not many hope for someone to score, either of them <laughs> to score like five or six in the competition. So it was pretty obvious from the start. Whereas in 2000, like Coxie just said, just with Trezeguet, Henri and, and Anelka, you had three of the most promising youngsters. They were still young at the time but and the biggest young talent in, in Europe and in the world. So it was a different setup of the team and also you knew that in terms of how they were going to play 2000 was was going to be completely different than, than 98. Let's look at that team uh, it's a, a stunning roll call of names and you've got Barthez in goal a back four of Turam, Desai, Blanc, Lisa Rizou, you've got Deschamps and Petty in the engine room Zidane, Djorkaev and of course that key difference, uh, no more Givarch you've got Anelka and Omri up front I think you'll agree Jules, all those names much better in their original Essex um, One <laughs> other notable difference though is the identity of the manager in 1998, it's Amy Jacquet he stands down and Roger Lemaire comes in, what was the general perception of Roger Lemaire? So Lemaire was quite unknown to the general public because he was Jacquet's assistant and he was quite 
uh, discreet at the time in 98. But what people didn't know is how important his role had been since Jacquet took over in, in 94 and in the running to uh, 96 and then 98 as well, because he was a bit the jester there. He was very close to the players because Jacquet was very introvert and Jacquet was, was the, the high figure, but was not very close to his own players. But Le Maire was, and Le Maire was the funny one who was making the players laugh, who was, when there was a problem, he was the one sorting it out. He was not a very good coach, but he was very good at being a, a, a manager in the sense of, of man management, if you want. So he took over quite naturally. And I think kept the dynamic of 98 tactically, in a way, where the players had a lot of responsibility. And, and he did the rest by being very good with the players in that sort of man management way. I mean, looking at CV, Cox, are you... The most notable thing on there is that he's head coach of the French army football team. Yeah, I was intrigued by that. He had a brief spot at Longs, I think, as well, but he hadn't coached properly in terms of Ligue 1 for about 15 years. So, I mean, it's interesting you say he was unknown to the French public because I remember going to that tournament barely being aware of him. But, you know, as we said before, there was quite a big overhaul in terms of, not the squad in terms of personnel, but in terms of the way they played. He did facilitate a, uh, yeah, just a more attacking approach. But Didier Deschamps stays and a controversial choice. Eric Cantona, of course, called him the water carrier and and said an awful lot of uh, other unkind things about him. Tell me more about him, Jules. Deschamps was the boss. He was the boss in 98. He was the boss in 2000. And if O2 was so bad in that World Cup, it's mostly because he wasn't there anymore and he had retired after the win in, in 2000. But he was, you know, maybe he was past his best in 2000 and didn't have the legs to run as much maybe as he did before as a, as a water carrier, but he certainly still had the intelligence and the, the, the character and the personality to, to still be the boss in that team. There was a lot of debate before the tournament and during the tournament about playing Vieira and Petit together in front of that back four and not Deschamps anymore. And I think that's why he ended up retiring straight after the final because he felt that Vieira and Petit were by far better than him anyway. But he was still very important in the makeup of that team that, that was going to win the tournament. But, but also, in a in a very almost coaching way when there was not a game where he, you know, uh, where they were based in the camp at Clairefontaine before, he was the one that was running the show, basically, and everything they were doing. And he was so important in that role, even if on the pitch he was not as good as he was in 98, for example. And those calls for Vieira and Petit to play together must have um, been emphasised by the fact that Arsenal was so good at the time. Um, and also you've got Thierry Henry up front. I mean, it's a growing Arsenal influence on this national team, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Anelka had left Arsenal by that point, but obviously developed at Arsenal. Henry transformed when he played under Wenger. And, and just after the tournament, they signed both Pires and uh, Wiltord, who played a really crucial role, particularly in the semi-final and final from the bench. So, yeah, it's, I mean... Obviously, there weren't many France players who were actually playing in Ligue 1, so it was Arsenal, really, who were kind of the most French team in Europe at that point. Let's get on to the tournament then. First game, France beat Denmark 3-0, and this hammers home the point that this is a very different team. Ça va repartir de l'autre côté. Henry avec Zidane qui va relancer Thierry Henry. Allez, faut accélérer, ça fait du 2 contre 1. Parce qu'au deuxième poteau, il y a Anelka, il y a une occasion de but là pour les Français. Henry, tout seul, 2-0. Quel chef-d'œuvre de Thierry Henry they felt so confident before the tournament. They couldn't wait for that Denmark game to start because they knew they were going to smash them and then they, they, they really believed they would smash the whole tournament, to be fair. And although they got a bit lucky at times, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but they felt, before even it started, they felt like no one could beat them anyway. And it didn't look like anyone could beat them on that first game, did it, Coxie? No, I mean, that Henri goal in particular is just... 
his level of pace is just incredible. There's nothing to the goal aside from him getting the ball on the halfway line, just running past or running away from everyone. There's no assist, there's no tackle. It's just, it's quite incredible how fast he was at that point. And I think at that stage, how defenders weren't really accustomed to playing against players who were that quick. There was still a lot of defenders who were built for aerial battles and they just couldn't cope with Omri. And then we get to the second game, Jules, and it's it's not the most convincing victory over the Czech Republic. As you were watching it, a young French football fan, mm. were you starting to worry by that point that maybe it had been, you know, if you go back to 1992 and all the hope before that tournament and France are a damp squib, did you start thinking, oh God... It was just a different style of game than the Denmark one when they had a lot of space. And I think the Czech were not very stupid. They looked at that Denmark game and thought, you know what, if we let Thierry run for, for 50 yards or an Elka or whoever else, we're going to get battered. So they, they didn't allow the French too much space. And I think they had to find another way of, of playing. And the other key part and player in that team was Zidane, obviously. Him and Jokaev, although Jokaev, it's a different style, but Zidane, the people were expecting him to be able to unlock a game like that when there would be no space for whoever played up front. And he had to do something special to win that game. And he did it maybe more later in the tournament. But there was a feeling after the Czech game that whatever would come against them, against the French, they had everything to beat any sort of defence, whether it was a high line, whether it was everyone in their own box, that we had the the ability and the talent in that team and in that squad to be able to face any sort of defending and find a way of breaking it, scoring and, and winning games. Except they didn't win the next game, did they? They lost to the Dutch in the final game, which made them runners up. But Coxie, how much how much do we put on, on that game? Well, they rotated half the team. And uh, at that point, there wasn't a particular advantage in terms of coming first and second when you look at who they're playing. So it was I mean, a really good game. It was 3-2, I remember it well. But it wasn't something I think you can criticise them for. I don't think there was too much upset that they didn't win that one. I mean, it actually looks worse historically when you think, oh, well, they lost that, they're the runners-up, that means they get Spain. But, of course, in these days, Spain weren't really the superpower that we we know them to be now. They were kind of serial bottlers. Um, but, Jules, quite a dramatic first knockout game, that. Oh, an incredible game. And I think the key game, obviously, because if you if you don't win, you are. But, but also, in terms of... There was all all that talk before the tournament on, you know, we are so good, we are this, we are that. And then you had to deliver. And I think that game and how hard that game was, and we said it earlier, but they got a bit lucky at times. Raul missing that penalty right at the end to make it 2-2 was a big thing in that tournament. Dernière minute. Au-dessus. Il n'y avait pas penalty, Thierry. Il n'y avait pas penalty. I think the French... The Zidane free kick, the Jokaev goal, which is magnificent, a really magnificent goal, made the difference. But they played as a team. They were maybe not as fluid, would you say, going forward than they could have been. And it was a good Spain side, although they had, like you said, it was not the Spain team of eight years later. But it was still a very good, talented Spain squad. But I think the experience of 98 made the difference in that game and also in the semi-final in a way, but in that quarter-final, because they never panicked even at 1-1 and even when they were 2-1 down and maybe not the best team in that second half especially towards the end and they just, just never panicked and I think they had the belief the inner belief that they would go through anyway Coxie was that what swung it the belief yeah I think so and I think at this stage as well we're starting to see how good Zidane is um, because when you look at 98 I mean he was suspended for two games after getting sent off against Saudi Arabia 2000 I don't think you can really fault anything he did in the tournament he was just the absolute epitome of I guess of the kind of 
microcosms of Zidane we see on YouTube. You know, he was just doing incredible things. And against Spain in particular, he just led the fight, took the game to Spain. Um, and even though they got a little, little bit lucky with the Raul penalty, France were clearly a better team than Spain in that game. Le pied magique de Zizou. Face à Canizares et au mur espagnol. Moment de vérité dans ce match. Allez, Zinedine Zidane. One of the interesting things in, in this section in the book is the, the way that you talk about Zidane and his career. And, and it, it had highs, um, but it also had really, really big lows as well. Was there a point like in 2000, did people really know what sort of player Zidane was, how good he was? Well, I think it was, it was the tournament where he first became appreciated on such a wide level mm. across Europe. And I think... The nice thing about this tournament was it was so open and attacking. And the four semi-finals all had a really good number 10. So you had Rui Costa, Dennis Bergkamp, Francesco Totti. And all those players, absolutely you know, legendary number 10s of their era. But even then, I think Zidane was on another level to all of them. And as, as we're going to talk about, I think, uh, a little bit later, his game against Portugal was just, I mean, one of the best individual displays you'll ever see from any player. And you'll hear more about that after this. Ron Chopper Harris. Julian Dix, Johan de Kock. Everyone loves a football hard man. But if you struggle to get up for the big games or give it 110% for 90 minutes, well, we here at the Totally Football Show have a bona fide solution. That's why we've teamed up with Manuel, who are here to give you a helping hand. Yep, if you've got trouble getting a stiffy, all you need to do is head to manual.co and enter the offer code FOOTBALL to get your first month's treatment for erectile dysfunction for just £5. Manual is here to help give you all the right information so you can be the healthiest, happiest, most confident man you can possibly be. With Manual, there's no doctor's waiting room, no cues at the pharmacy, no embarrassment. Just an honest, holistic approach to your health and well-being. Their website has loads of facts about sex, erections and erectile dysfunction so you can make an informed decision. You'll get a free online consultation and a box of medically approved little blue pills sent in discreet packaging right to your door. So if you've got trouble getting an erection, there's a simple solution with Manual. Head to manual.co, that's M-A-N-U-A-L dot C-O, and enter the offer code FOOTBALL to get your first month's treatment for £5. Manual, because hard should be easy. Now back to the studio, Michael Cox. So, Euro 2000, semi-finals, it's France against Portugal. France have absolutely smashed Denmark. Uh, beaten Czech Republic, lost to the Dutch in a game that didn't really count, beaten the Spanish. So what does Roger Lemaire do? He changes his tactics. <laughs> yeah, he does. He, he goes back to playing on Marina and Elker up front and that's basically because the Portuguese backline isn't very fast and he wants to exploit their their lack of speed and, and you have both of them running into the channels. Um, but it doesn't go well. Nuno Gomez opens the scoring with a really good goal from outside the box. Jules, at this point, are you beginning to worry? You've got this assistant manager in charge of the team. He's changed his tactics just before a semi-final and now you're 1-0 down and heading out. 
Yeah, and but again, I don't think anyone panics. I remember watching the game at home and there was no panic. My dad, my brother, the rest of the family. I remember the players. There was just no panic. I think they were so sure of their talent, of their potential, that they, was, they, they knew they would come back. And again, like we just said before, like Coxie said before, then Zidane steps in. And then in the form he was, and a leader that who doesn't speak, because that's why, you know, he was that kind of leader who just basically says, give me the ball and I do the rest. Pretty much sums up the rest of that game. Once Nuno Gomez has scored a goal, the rest was just was just a Zidane masterclass and going all the way into extra time, but it was Zidane all over. Leaving aside how the game ends for the moment, what was it that Zidane did in this match that, that really elevated him? There was just three or four bits of incredible skill. I mean, particularly because he's playing as a number 10 and, and France are playing two up front, so he's kind of floating between the flanks. And they just keep on uh, switching diagonal balls to him, particularly from Petit. And the way he controls the ball, often kind of on the half volley while moving in a different direction, is just, just remarkable. And it's kind of, uh, you know, it was the backdrop to a lot of kind of football adverts. And I remember a lot of promo things for the, the Euro final and, and for the World Cup two years later, he's just kind of Zidane set over orchestral music or whatever, because he was kind of on that level. Well, a few years later, of course, there was a movie, uh, Zidane, a 21st century portrait, which was essentially Zidane set to orchestral music. Uh, I think Scottish band Mogwai did the score for that. Yeah, and, and that didn't end too well, did it? Because he got sent off, I think, at the end of, uh, at the end of that game, whereas this one uh, obviously ended on the winning side. Tell me about the equaliser, Jules. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we said the choice of going with, with Anelka and Ori up front, it's, it's a fascinating one because they were never the closest of friends when they were playing for the France youth teams before. For example, do you remember the, the under-20 uh, World Cup in Malaysia when Gerard Oulier was the manager mm-hmm. and he was the first one to try to play Trezeguet, Henri and Anelka all together. So a front three, which is on paper, like a, an incredible front three. And in the youth World Cup already, they struggled to play with each other. They struggled to find each other. They struggled to link up, play with each other. The movement was quite similar between Anelka and Henri. Trezeguet was struggling to find his place in between the other two. And also the three, the three different players, but the, th- the three players who, who want to have a lot of the ball, whether it's, uh, you know, the cross has to come to Trezeguet or the ball has to come to Henri or Anelka into feet. So the difficulty of playing Anelka and Henri together was also a bit of a question mark over it. And they did really well together against Denmark. And in that Portugal game, I don't think it was their best performance together. However, they combined well for that, for that equaliser. And Anelka serves Henri and Henri scores. And, and obviously that goal is crucial and it's a turning point because of what then happens next. And Because and... what happens next is we get all the way to the last, last furlongs of, uh, of extra time, 117th minute, when we see what has to go down as one of the finest saves in the tournament from Abel Xavier, regrettably. L'arbitre assistant qui réclame Monsieur Benco ah. et il y a peut-être penalty. Il y a penalty. Alors que va faire Monsieur Benco Penalty. Non, non, attendez, attendez, oui, il y a penalty. Oui, il y a penalty. And it's a 118th minute penalty for Zidane, and this has uh, relevance. Well, if you go back to 84, which was uh, Platini's tournament, he scores a 118th minute penalty against Portugal in the semi final. So Zidane did exactly the same thing. Um, and it's interesting how the, the penalties actually won as well because Trezeguet and Wiltord have been summoned from the bench. Long ball to Trezeguet, flicks it on for Wiltord, 
who blasts it towards the goal. And, and Xavi, I think, actually does quite a good job of making it look like it didn't hit his hand. <laughs> but unfortunately, for him, the linesman spotted it. It summarizes their strength and depth. They've now got four really good forwards. They start with Omri and Anelka, Trezeguet, and, and Will Todd are the ones who come off the bench. And of course, it, you know, the, the contributions of those two foreshadows what's going to happen in the final as well. And Sudan obviously scores. Through they go to the final duels. And it's against Italy. And of course, uh, and this is something else you, you find in the book, that France in 98 are very much a robust, almost Italian-style football team. Now they're not. And now they're playing Italy. And now this is a real chance to impose their personality on it. Yeah, although this is still a very much, it's very much an Italian-French team anyway, because still most of them playing in, in Serie A at the time... Uh, We've benefited so much from the, the sort of winning mentality from, from the Italian that all our French players who played there for so long so gathered and were taught and, and the, the, the tactical side of things as well. So although there's more flair and it's a more expensive style of football, I think inside them, the likes of Desailly and Deschamps and Zidane and even Henri, just for his, his short spell at Juventus, have that sort of Italian part in them. And... I think there's a lot of people in the country and even amongst the players, I think, who don't have a very good feeling about that final. Because if there's one team, obviously, who know them well, it has to be Italy uh, because they play against each other every week. And in 98 already, there was a very tight game between them two in the quarterfinals. And then Luigi Di Biagio misses his penalty in the penalty shootout and France qualified for the semi-final on penalties. So we knew before the final that it was going to be a hell of a game that they would have studied the way we're playing tactically perfectly well. So they would surely have a plan to make sure that we can't play the way we want to play and that it would be a very tough game. And I think we would have picked anyone else to play in the final but the Italians. And yet they were there. And the feeling, I don't think, was that optimistic before the final. And if there's one thing worse than playing Italy in a final, it's being 1-0 down to Italy in a <laughs> final, which France are very quickly uh, through a Marco Del Vecchio goal. This is an Italy side. The defence is Nesta, Cannavaro, Maldini. So what does Roger Lemaire do? He goes for broke. He brings on Wilton and Trezeguet again and Robert Pires down the left flank. Yeah, it was funny because, I mean, going into that game, I can't remember a, a final where there's been such a clamour for one side to win. I mean, Italy were really, really defensive. Yeah. They'd played the semi-final against uh, Holland, went down to 10 men early and basically parked the bus for 90 minutes in the end, um, plus extra time. And there's just such a desire for France to win. And uh, during the latter stages, I mean, it's really not looking good for France because this is so comfortable defending deep. Omri and Anelka have used their pace throughout the tournament. They can't really do that now. And that's when you see really the, the benefit of bringing on Trezeguet who ironically is just about to move to Juventus. Mm. And then in the latter stages, obviously, France rally considerably. Yeah, they equalise and they send the game into extra time. Barthez très loin, avec son pied gauche, sur la tête de Trezeguet, qui a joué la déviation. Wilton, qui peut frapper. Oui, oui, Charles, un partout, un partout. Ce coup-là, il l'a joué, Wilton. It's a similar move than the one in the semi-final where you play long on Trezeguet and then Trezeguet flicks the ball and then Viltord, who was the perfect player for that sort of super serve, uh, you know, send me on for the last 20 minutes and I'll do something special. Camille roll and, and he works so well. The period serve is interesting because he comes on for Lizarazu, so you basically take your left back out and Le Maire says to Pires, just go on the left-hand side, do whatever you want, but just 
all that left flank is yours. So you'll have to run a lot. There's four minutes to go. I think he comes on in the 86th minute. And Pires says that when he comes on, he has the feeling that at some point in that game, he will do something special. He says, I don't know, I don't know what it was, but I, I got on and I knew that at some point I will play a part in that final in a way or another, it could have been a mistake, it could have been a gifting a goal to Italy or whatever, but he, he says, I felt that I was going to do something in that final. So first, the, the Viltot goal to equalise and send the game into, into extra time, but those three Serbs, Pires, Viltot and Trezeguet, changed the game completely. And of course, it's a golden goal extra time for those younger listeners. That's where it was genuinely next goal wins. Uh, now discontinued, of course, but it really was a golden goal, wasn't it? Because this happened. Albertini didn't control that. Perez got it for France. And it's Perez. Trezeguet is waiting in the centre. Trezeguet! France have won the European Championship! There's du monde, there's du monde, there's Trezeguet! Oh, oui! L'équipe de France est championne d'Europe! And if you have a look for that on YouTube, you'll see that Trezeguet pretty much tears the back of the net out. Yeah, it's an incredible finish. I mean, genuinely really, really good goal. Great work from Perez down the down the left flank and Trezeguet finishing with his left foot. It was still quite unusual to see a golden goal at that point. I mean, it happened in 1996 and Biroff had won it with a golden goal, but it's just kind of such a shock to just have the tournament suddenly over. France has suddenly won. But, you know, to repeat what I said earlier, I don't think there's been many finals where everyone was just actually keen for that to happen. It was a bit of a shame for Italy and a couple of their players. I mean, Maldini never won a major international tournament. Toldo had had an incredible uh, tournament, particularly a semi-final when he saved, uh, I think, three penalties mm-hmm. um, from Holland and he made a mistake for Wiltord's goal. But yeah, I think everyone was delighted to see Trezeguet smash it in. And so France create history. Not only are they World Cup holders, they're European Championship winners. What effect does that have on French football in France because prior to 1998 we've always been told France is all about cycling and rugby and you know not not so much a football nation after all does this start to change things yes I think it, it did start to change I think 98 was the bigger catalyst because you know it was a World Cup to start with and it was there was already been a Euros in, in 84 in that great generation we had before. But yeah, 98 was the big one. And then they looked so good and they were so good in 2000 that we took it a bit for granted, to be fair. Even if the final was, was that kind of, of final. It was funny because I think the Italians were quite loud on the bench uh, thinking they were going to win. They were winding up the French big time. And when Lisa Razou came off for, for Pires, he said that I sat on the bench and I realised how much... The Italian had been winding us up and talking and talking too much and everything. And, and you could feel the tension on the bench. And when Vilto scored in the 94th minute, then suddenly the whole mood changed on the bench because now it's the French who are winding the Italians up by saying, like, well, you know, you can go back and sit down because you're not celebrating now anytime soon. And then obviously when Trezeguet scores, it goes crazy. The problem, though, is that that win brought a lot of arrogance that we didn't need any invitation to get anywhere because that we build in with, with a lot of arrogance anywhere. And the, the O2 failure, huge failure in that World Cup, I think is because the arrogance that hadn't crept in so much between 98 and 2000, now that we were the best, not just in the world, but also in Europe, we believed it was going to be easy in O2 to, to keep winning and continuing winning. And I think as much as it did a lot of good to French football and to those players, it did a lot of damage as well because Deschamps left and because after that, it was never going to be the same for that generation. France's next competitive game of football was against uh, a side who were known as their B team, uh, Senegal, in 2002. 
and it went wrong. Um, why did 2002 go so wrong when 98 and 2000 had gone so right? I think partly what Jules says, and I think they're probably guilty of not refreshing the side as well. When you look at the defence in, in 2002, they're all the wrong side of, I mean, not just the wrong side of 30, but they're 33, 34, some of them. And I mean, El Hedge Juf, who you know isn't a player, remember particularly fondly for various reasons, but he just runs absolute riot against that defence, you know, and the goal kind of comes from that and running into the channels. But yeah, 2000 was the peak. Um, maybe one of the last times you can say the best international side of that period was better than the best club side. You know, I think in, in recent years, we've seen a big difference in terms of club football has progressed, international football has stagnated. But I think Petit said at the start of that tournament, France probably had eight or nine of the best 11 in the tournament. Mm. He was probably including himself in that, so maybe <laughs> seven or eight. But it was true. And, and they played incredible football, just a, a fantastic team. They had the feeling that they were the best, that they deserved to win the tournament because they were the best team with the best players in that tournament. Maybe not the best manager, although he did some really good things. But they had that feeling. And the feeling they had before the tournament that they were invincible, apart from the, the Holland defeat that they didn't really care about, proved right in many ways and there was that scene just after after they got the curb after the final where a few of them sat on the on the pitch in, in Rotterdam um, Deschamps Pires Henri uh, Desai Vieira and just there with the trophy and just took the time of reflecting which they couldn't do in 98 because he was at home and he was so crazy but in 2000 and then they were there chatting and they were just saying like you know, we've done it. We've done something that no one else has ever done before. We won the World Cup and the Euros back to back. And we beat the Italians as well in the way we did it, which is incredible. And I think that moment for a lot of them will last much longer in their memories than just winning it and all the, the good football they played and, and the Trezeguet goal and etc. Because in the end of the day, it was a bunch of friends who were at their peak, like Coxie said, and one of the best teams that we've ever seen assembled in international football and for them to have those 10-15 minutes at the end feeling like they were by themselves in the whole entire world to cherish that win was just a, I think a wonderful thing. No celebrations must have been something Jules. It was something all the families were there obviously and the players went back to the hotel with a lot of uh, French champagne and, and all of that and uh, some of them went outside the hotel to I think get a bit of fresh air and it was really foggy that day and Yuri Jokhev managed to get lost and it took him half an hour to get back to, to find his way back oh God. to the hotel there was still plenty of time left for celebrations and, and for champagne but uh, he fondly remembers getting lost just outside the hotel somewhere because of the fog <laughs> oh, who among us hasn't managed that uh, that is all we've got time for this week you can catch more from Jules on ESPN and all over the place including here on the Totally Football Show and Michael's book Zonal Marking The Making of Modern European Football is out now on hardback ebook audiobook all over the place join us next time for our fourth episode we'll be taking a look at Jose Mourinho's Porto and that shock Champions League victory 2004